It takes more than a fancy editor color scheme and a coding font with ligatures to be a great <laughs> software engineer. This is episode 111 of the Soft Skills Engineering Podcast. I'm your host, Jameson Dance. <laughs> I'm your host, Dave Smith. Are you laughing because you are one of those peons that don't use a coding <laughs> font with ligatures? <laughs> I don't even remember what ligatures are. <laughs> oh, ligatures are little like... I don't know what the technical description of them is, but I know when I type like double equals, it'll connect yeah. the two equals oh, and replace yeah. them with a different glyph or like greater <laughs> yeah. than or equals to, or there's lots of like, mm-hmm. maybe it'll replace the anonymous function thing with a lambda. It like, like an actual lambda characters symbol, together a to Greek make lambda. it prettier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and makes you a better developer. That's right. <laughs> I bet you use Times New Roman as your font. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I just draw the line at variable width. It's got to be a fixed width font, and that's it. Yeah, I've heard of people that use variable width fonts, and <sighs> I believe that they're trolling everyone. But... Doesn't Don't ligatures make it harder to align your code? Like, you effectively have introduced a variable width font, right? Uh, I think, all right. Time for the traditional talk about stuff that we don't know anything about. But I'm pretty sure they combine it into fixed width symbols. That are as long as the original input symbol? Yeah, yeah. So like triple equals is the same length. It's just three lines all completely connected together. Okay. Stuff like that. I don't know how I program without that. I mean, frankly. It just, your (laughs) eye doesn't have to stop to scan each individual symbol. You just read right through them. Just, oh, it's like this smooth track from left to right, and instead of stopping at every character, oh, like geez, I, I like I normally do. I mean, um, I just I I'll never get those microseconds back that I've wasted scanning equal sign by equal sign. Yep. How many Wait. equals? One, <laughs> one, <laughs> two, <laughs> three, four. Nope, just three. Instead of just like <laughs> zoop. Oh man, <laughs> what a waste. Of uh, okay. Oh, what, what is this show? This is a show where we take your non-technical questions about the technical field of software development, and we answer them. Yeah, we'd like to thank our supporters of the show who are contributing on Patreon at the level where they get a call out every single week. This week, they are Nick Cantar, Dimitro and Neonilla, David Jackson, Chris Fitkin, Ken Howard, Sean Clayton, and Dustin Coates. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Your support helps go to pay for lots of expenses. We're actually looking at uh, doing some more design work. So we're going to use some of the money that we've raised through Patreon to do that. And it will result in more beautiful graphics, which will eventually turn into more beautiful stickers and all kinds of neat stuff. So thank you for Mm -hmm. supporting that. We are stimulating the economy with your Patreon contributions. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Should we read our first question? Sure. Would you like me to? Yeah, I would. Okay, this, this comes from a listener named Fabio, who says, Hello, Jameson and Dave. Heart emoji, your show, clap emoji. All right. That was good. <laughs> so it's clear to me you don't use a font with ligatures because you're, you're reading the individual characters instead of abstracting over the meaning <laughs> of those symbols, Dave. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be love your show. Like that. <laughs> okay, got it's it. It's not claps between every okay. word, which would be if they were if if Fabio was calling us out for something stupid we said. But right, that w- that would be like slow clap yeah. between each word. Uh, okay, which we also welcome, by the way. 
Uh, okay, moving on here. He writes, I have been a C-sharp developer for seven years. Last year, I learned Erlang. I fell in love with functional programming. After that, I learned Elm, and oh boy, I had never dreamed a compiler or computer could do so much work for me, preventing so many mistakes that it would otherwise require an unholy number of, air quotes, unit tests. The thing is, I can no longer find satisfaction with any job. I love to write software, but at some point, I became almost dogmatic. I abhor more and more the discipline it takes in certain languages to make my code be as pure and testable as in an FP, which stands for functional programming, language. I had to do so much unlearning that now I feel that I am refusing to un unlearn all these different <laughs> ideas and paradigms and just go back to making the tests happy. I seek your humorous words of wisdom on how to find contentment with my job again without looking at a language and dreading it. Okay, a couple points to address. First, what is the unholy number of unit tests? I'm assuming that's 666 unit tests. Maybe in different <laughs> cultures, there are different unholy numbers. I guess it could be 13. Mm -hmm. That would be unholy mm -hmm. for a few reasons, unless your code is very <laughs> small. <laughs> How many unit yeah. tests do we have? We like to keep it at 13. <laughs> Another thing is, I, I like this model of learning and then unlearning and then un unlearning it's like fabio has <laughs> he he's been swept up in this vision of like the glorious functional programming uh heaven-like state and then he has to descend back mm -hmm. down to like the mud and <laughs> typing equals all the time for mutation and i don't know pointers <laughs> and oh all this all this <laughs> common stuff that just brings you down <laughs> it says here that he became almost dogmatic. Based on what you wrote here, Fabio, I think you should scratch the word almost. <laughs> You're straight up. You, you got dogma. I mean, you got it. <laughs> um, there are religious connotations with the word dogmatic as well. So I think that metaphor is still fitting. So I love functional programming. Oh, yeah. I think it's fantastic. And if I could choose, I would write all my code in functional languages and styles. I also, in the past several months, took a job writing uh, Golang and Angular and JavaScript, and that's so far <laughs> from functional programming. Go is all about <laughs> um, imperative code and mutation, and, and it's not quite object-oriented, but it's definitely not functional. JavaScript and Angular 1 is is... Well, it can be a, a rat's nest of side effects and mutation and, and things like that. You can write it in different styles too, but it turns out. It's, o it's only a rat's nest of side effects and mutations if you're doing it right. Yeah, or or if like you've written code that shipped instead of was in a blog post, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So I, I feel you, man. I feel this tension between like, here's the kind of style I really like. I like this feeling of like thinking through the problem and modeling it with types and, and thinking about functions that don't have side effects and just passing your data through this pipeline that transforms it and and uh, modeling IO in a way that doesn't involve side effects. All these things are super cool to me and then I just don't do it at work. And I guess for me, I also think lots of other things are cool. So it's not as big of a deal that like I, I love the engineering side of functional programming, and I also really like these like scaling problems and team and people problems, and and um, so it's kind of like a trade-off where I'm okay doing technical work in non-FP languages. I think Jameson, you've taken great solace in curating an eclectic collection of clicky keyboards too. Yeah, that's true. 
that's true. I believe that is related to functional programming. <laughs> but it helps you take your mind off the fact that at this moment, I'm not typing Elm. Yeah. But at least the click is so satisfying every character. Yeah, all my pain is washed away <laughs> by the ecstasy of, of the clicky clack. <laughs> I mean, it does affect how I write code in other languages, but there's also... We'll probably talk more about this later, but you, you can talk about how you can borrow from different languages and paradigms, but there's a downside to that where you, there's a, there's a common idiom in your language of choice and there's a common style. And if you bring in Elm and Haskell into C sharp, the people that just write like air quotes, normal C sharp are not going to understand it. They're not going to be familiar with it or comfortable with it. You're, you're, you're going to be fighting against the the current of the language in the community. And mm -hmm. so I think a lot of times the advice is like, well, you can just, you can just try and bring that stuff back. And to some extent you can, but it's hard to do it completely. It's always this unsatisfying Frankenstein monster of like, yeah, I'll, I'll do some stuff. Maybe I'll make sure more of my functions are stateless. And, but there's all this other stuff I can't do because of the language. Or if I do it, I have to do it in this weird workaround way. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. I don't get good pattern matching like Erlang has, or I don't have algebraic data types like Elm has. And so I have to like have giant switch statements to look at strings or whatever your mm -hmm. weird workarounds are. So I don't think you can ever just get there by copying things over. For me, at least that just, it made me sad trying to copy it too explicitly or trying to, trying to model different programming language paradigms in, in, cultures that i feel like didn't support it it's like just it just kind of feels like rubbing salt in the wound you know a little like, bit and <laughs> and also at you, some point you know how to do this you're trying but like you can't all of the tooling and community and libraries and stuff in in that language are geared around that paradigm and it it becomes valuable not just because the paradigm is great but because you have all these things to support it and when you move away from that it the the value drops a little bit and the effort to implement it certainly rises so you might run into mm -hmm. this situation where like yeah it'd be cool if you used monads everywhere but like it's also going to cause a lot of pain and a lot of problems in your c-sharp code so it might not be worth it in the long run or the short run honestly <laughs> well uh one thing you could do to fill your time and and maybe make you feel better about things is uh at work you could try to defeat all of the your coworkers unit tests and linters and stuff mm. in really subtle ways that point out flaws in your language mm. so then they will come to the conclusion on their own we got to rewrite all this in scala <laughs> you're like no that's not what i wanted <laughs> i've made a huge mistake <laughs> i'm sure scala is great you just have to be waiting in the wings at all times and be like you know this never would have happened in haskell yeah i've worked with people like that i've also been that person too and <laughs> it didn't go great <laughs> we sure didn't use haskell <laughs> but it's good it's good to have a a, per, a judicious person around who says things like that right to just make sure your mind is open and your team is aware of yeah alternative approaches yeah it's also nice sometimes to have this green verdant pasture that like all our problems would be solved if only we were in this other language and i can oh, yeah. tell you i've spent some time with haskell folks and maybe all of your problems would be solved but you would have plenty of new problems <laughs> there's no silver bullet for sure but it can be nice to think like oh wouldn't life be great if if all the problems we know about were solved and we didn't know about any of the new problems that this would cause <laughs>
<laughs> I'd like to exchange all of my current problems for ignorance, please. Yeah. Ah, <laughs> oh, that feels better. Yeah. But I don't know. It can feel nice. I think it is great to work on teams where people bring varied technical experiences and varied ideas and stuff. That's that's super motivating to me. And I love it when somebody brings up like a framework or paradigm or tool that I don't know about and teaches me about it. Even if we don't end up using it, it it's energizing. So that's cool. You know, I, I really think you struck an important vein, Jameson, with your comment about these green pastures and how you don't really see all the problems. One of the things that this listener said in his comment that we trimmed down a little was that uh, he had pe- actually picked up these languages on his own time, which means he was probably working on pet projects, probably alone, and didn't really have the burden of like production maintenance and operational stuff. And frankly, when I do little things on my own pet projects, I just don't really get a full sense for what it's like to operate a product with that technology, uh, with actual customers, with a team, with business requirements and pressures. You know, that really changes everything. And it, boy, does it really bring, it really exposes some of the cracks in your language. So the fact that you're not completely in love with C Sharp, which is your production language of choice today, for your team anyway, um, isn't really surprising. I think most people use their language or technology until the cracks appear and the pressures of operating their business force you to see all the issues. And, uh, you know, you can take solace in the fact that if you brought Elm in, you know, things wouldn't just be magically better. And I think that's really important for you to internalize. I love Elm and definitely some things would be magically better, but some (laughs) things would be worse. And one of those things that would be worse is trying to bring a team of C-sharp developers uh, <laughs> over to your side with Elm if they if you airdropped it in on them. Man, it's really easy to torpedo a technology choice if you hate it and think it's stupid, especially when it requires pretty dramatically changing the way that you think and that you work. And Elm certainly did that for me. Maybe maybe everyone there will be a natural, but uh, there, there are plenty of human problems to go with this if people have invested a lot of work in a certain in a certain model and paradigm Mm -hmm. i i guess we could talk about i don't know we've kind of poo-pooed the idea but (laughs) we've told you it's dumb and wrong i don't (laughs) think it's dumb and wrong we could talk about what you could do if you want to do this if you want to use these languages professionally right Mm -hmm. i mean an easy well not easy one Immediate solution is to just go find a job that uses those. Mm-hmm. I know people sometimes do that when technology is very important to them. They'll they'll just go find a job that uses that technology. That feels relatively common to me. Um, another option is to try and introduce it in your current workplace. I think this one for Erlang at least might be a little bit trickier. My impression is C Sharp is kind of a a monolith that lots of people use only C sharp and it's not it's not like this microservices environment where you run some stuff in C sharp and some stuff in Java and some stuff in Ruby and then like adding one more thing isn't as huge of a deal. So that feels a little bit trickier. Elm technically might be a little easier to drop in because you can just put it on some UI chunk somewhere and and replace a little piece that was JavaScript with Elm. But again the I think the harder thing is going to be bringing your team along. I've had an experience where I tried to convince a team to use Elm and I, I like, I don't know, I guess I just wore them down, but they didn't actually want to. Mm-hmm. And, and it turned out to not work because they weren't on board. And, and there are certainly a lot of new problems that come with it. And if you don't 
believe that it's worth it, then all those problems just hurt so much more to yeah. you and you're not willing to work through them. So it's just like this burden that you hate. And that's <laughs> not a good spot to be in. Yeah. So I guess if you can get the team excited about it and willing to try it, maybe you do little demos, maybe you you pair with them, you do little spikes of demonstrating concepts and benefits. If if they're sold on it, then I think it's a it's a possibility of introducing it. And if they're not, you're gonna be dealing with grumpy people that will <laughs> that will have trouble succeeding in this new world, I guess. I, I mean, I, I would say in this situation, I would probably not encourage Fabio to try to get his team to uh, invest in Erlang or Elm or any big change like that, unless there's a real clear really? business case. Yeah, I mean, so he's just kind of sampled in it, first of all, just pet projects. Um, it's definitely too early to recommend it for the team. And I don't really think that's what he wants to do anyway. I think he just wants to not dread going to work every day. <laughs> You know, and I think trying to convince a team to change, it could actually amplify that dread. Why? How would that amplify it? Well, because now not only are you dealing with this dreadful language that you've decided you don't like, but you also have all these dreadful coworkers who are telling you that your other language is no good and your job is to try to convince them to change their mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you really got to be up for that if you're going to go in. Uh, based on what I've read here, I don't think Fabio's up to that. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Maybe baby steps. I think if you, like you said, if you have a compelling business case beyond it's, I like this paradigm better, it's a little bit of an easier sell to introduce it at least. Um, I don't know what that is because I don't know your situation, but if, if you have a reason beyond, I think I would be happier programming this way because I think it's better. Programmers love opinions like this about like, this is the right way to build software and everybody has one. So just saying like, no, this is the right way to build software, I think is unlikely to Mm -hmm. to win people over if they're not already kind of in your camp. Yeah, totally agree. You could use F-sharp. <laughs> Just replace one of the letters. C to F. <laughs> That's like a tiny change. Easy. Yeah. I, I mean, I'll tell you exactly what's going to happen if you do that. You'll have one or two developers who are interested in F-sharp. They'll start writing their new code in F-sharp occasionally or maybe only this one module. And then everyone else will just dread going into that module because they'll be like, oh, geez, I don't know how to change that. I don't know how to test it. I don't know how to make changes to it without breaking stuff. I've seen that kind of ha thing happen in a code base where this one part was written by this one developer who was super into scheme, you know, and it's like no one else will touch it, right? <laughs> it's just really hard to foist this kind of a change on someone. Even if you have a pretty proactive, learning-focused developer team, it's pretty tough. Yep. I, has, I had a similar experience. One of my coworkers at an early job got really into Haskell, rewrote a significant chunk and an important chunk of our application in um, their translation of Haskell into the language we were using there. And I was just completely and utterly baffled. I didn't know what occurring was. I didn't know what higher order functions were. were. It, was, it all looked like magical nonsense and I could not touch anything. Mm -hmm. And I was so mad at them <laughs> because... <laughs> uh, they rewrote they rewrote it but also we still had to maintain it like there were still bugs in it and there were still features we needed to add to it so it, it felt like they just like came in and made my life horrible and created this chip on my shoulder that i have against Haskell <laughs> to this day. still really you still no, carry that no i don't i i actually really like it <laughs> um but boy was i upset for a couple months <laughs> so don't be that person yeah definitely not
All right. Have we answered the question? Well, I, I mean, you mentioned maybe you'll get a job in it, but the, the challenge there is that you don't quite have enough experience for a team of seasoned Elmers. Is that the word they use to describe themselves, by the way? Elmos. El- <laughs> really? I, I don't remember what the term is. <laughs> anyway, boy, Elm can just go in a lot of weird directions. So, uh, you know, you probably don't quite have enough experience to really go land a job as an experienced Elm developer. So you're in this catch-22. Right where you you want to work in these technologies, you can't get a new job doing it. Your current job won't change to do it. Uh, what do you do? And I think the answer is you try to find ways in which you can contribute. If if this is your goal to find a job doing this full time, find ways to contribute to Elm projects and make a little bit of a reputation for yourself, such that you can cite that as experience when you go to your new job. Now, of course, this will take time out of work, but it sounds like you're already doing that anyway. And if you put it to use for both learning these languages and concepts as well as getting some experience under your belt that can be referenced in an interview, then I think it'll really set you up for success if you want to go jump and do this stuff full time. Yeah, sounds great. Good advice, Dave. Good luck. Good luck with your rehab. Yep. Or alternatively, you could get a frontal lobotomy and just forget everything you've learned and say, ah, screw it. Oh, actually, that reminds me. Yes, there is one thing that I think would be really beneficial in this case. And that is that instead of focusing on the tools you're using to do the job, try to focus your attention on your customers who are benefiting from what you're building. Focus on their experience. Focus on the good that comes from what you've done and not how much work necessarily that you think is unnecessary that it took to, to get that product out in the first place. So I think if you can focus on that, you'll probably become a better developer regardless of the technology you use because you'll be looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, I think that when you said that, I feel like I recognize that in in my approach to work too, that I really like making things better and solving problems. And I also care a lot about the technology, but if I can make things better and solve problems, that's that's the higher motivator for me. Yep. So I've been writing a lot of make files and bash and awesome <laughs> tools like that. But it makes life better, so it's not too bad. Yeah, you thought your C-sharp was bad. Try writing some make files. (laughs) (laughs) Um, All right, should we talk about the next question? Yep, go for it. I will read it. How do I suggest firing or replacing an incompetent coworker? I have a a coworker who is pretty incompetent technically. Over the past few years that I've been here, he has proved time and time again that he's incapable of learning and really grasping how things work. He is able to accomplish basic feature work, but not capable of making good architecture decisions or why a given or explaining why a given framework should be chosen or solving harder problems. I'm not sure how to describe this, but maybe for example, how to build a resilient API client. However, this person is great at creating slides and presentations and JIRAs. So I think management thinks that they are okay at their job. He's also a nice guy. So I'm not sure how to say, Hey, you suck at your job. That's pretty harsh. How do I suggest to someone that he should be replaced? Ooh, tough situation. Hmm. What do you think? <laughs> I was just about to ask you the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's look at let's look at the facts here. So, this engineer is capable of doing basic feature work, uh, good at presentations, creating slides, and does good with Jira. I'm gonna assume. Jira means that he's a good communicator, keeps his tickets up to date, and stays on top of things, but is not good at architectural decisions or building things like resilient API clients. That's a quote. Yeah, you know, let me just be perfectly frank here. I don't see a case for firing this person based on what you've described. And if you came to me as your manager and shared this story with these facts, I would listen respectfully, and then I would have to ignore you because these examples are weak. 
And to me, you've described an employee who has a mix of basic competency and some skills that are very hard to come by, which are, you know, staying on top of JIRA and ability to present to management. So, I mean, that those are valuable skills. And I, I don't know, I just, I don't see the case here. Jameson, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's possible we don't have all the details, but from the description, it seems like I could see how this could be a frustrating person to work with for a certain kind of personality and people that um, value certain things, like people that really love um, kind of cleanliness and, and what they believe is good architecture and technical craft and mm-hmm. and things like that. And maybe this person just doesn't care about that and they just kind of like YOLO out their code and and fix their bugs <laughs> and, and copy paste things into submission and whatever. You know, I, I think we could stand to use the word YOLO more. I, I, <laughs> I really like that word. Is it? This is a pretty good generic verb. Oh, yeah. So I can see the frustration, but I agree with you that I don't see anything here that merits firing. I feel like if someone caused pretty consistent damage to the team or to the company and didn't respond to feedback about that, then that might be a case for it. But just saying like, well, they just don't write clean enough code. Like, tell me how that affects you. Did that cause production to go down? Did that like quadruple the time it took to implement this feature? What what was the cost of that? Because if the cost is just like, there's this part of the code that is a little bit crappier. Um, again, it's not ideal, but there's always going to be parts of the code that are crappier. And yeah, and they they might just need to have certain kinds of tasks given to them, right? Maybe they need to focus on smaller features and bug fixes and and kind of like doing work that has a a smaller scope technically and then also focusing on the communication and and Jira stuff. That's fine too, right? I've worked with people like that, that there's certain skills they have and certain skills they don't and we just figure out how to work together as a team. There are tasks they don't do because they wouldn't do well at it, just like there are tasks I don't do because I wouldn't do well at them. Not everyone has to be the rock star 10x code crushing sorcerer (laughs) wizard engineer (laughs) and you can still build good products without those people there there is a cost to writing bad code and there's definitely technical debt and it'll slow things down but i I don't know it's it's hard to say that's enough to fire someone yeah definitely like what's what's the harm it's causing the team and if that harm is great enough and they don't work to correct that then maybe you could you could use that as a reason to fire them but just saying like their functions are too long. I go, okay. <laughs> <laughs> now, I mean, it, you know, in this question, it does use the adjective incompetent. Now, if that, I mean, in and of itself, being incompetent at your assigned job is probably grounds for termination, right? I mean, if you yep. cannot complete yeah. your tasks, it's pretty reasonable that you would be let go. But what I'm hearing here is you use the term, you use the adjective incompetent, but then you also say he is able to accomplish basic feature work. Maybe it's like a level of their position. Like maybe, maybe they have a more senior role on the team or something like that. It could be. I could see that causing a lot of problems. The other thing I could see here is once in a while, I've encountered people who have, they occupy a special place in management's eye. Like management just seems to really like these people and yet the engineers know that they're not that great, right? But somehow management has this rosy opinion of them, but then on the ground they write code that's not great or they're just barely competent or whatever. And it creates this like sense of, I'm going to use the word jealousy in me when I see situations like this, because I'm like, no, this isn't right. Management must know that you're not the best, (laughs) you know? Yeah. 
And I wonder if there's some of that going on. And I've personally experienced that where I'm like, oh man, I don't wonder why management likes this engineer so much. They barely can get the job done. You know, meanwhile, I'm over here destroying it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Just tells you a little bit about my inflated ego. <laughs> or your ability to destroy it in a good way. <laughs> I mean, say that is the case. Like, what does that mean? Is it your job to, to tell management the truth? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, if you're... You're saying this is just a thing that happens, so maybe it's okay that this is happening to you? Yeah, like, I, I think that in my younger years, I felt like that was an error that needed to be corrected. Um, you know, but really at the end of the day, does it really matter, you know, if, if management knows the exact truth of just where they are on the pecking order, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's also, I feel like I've seen this situation play out where someone was a total cowboy coder and they, management would tap them on the shoulder. They would, they would ship something really fast that would cause lots of problems down the line. But management was happy because they displayed this ability to respond quickly and to ship quickly. And then we were kind of left cleaning up after them and sure. dealing with the negative repercussions. So maybe that's the situation too, where yeah. they're kind of, they're taking the credit for it and not being, their, their role in the pain that it causes is not being acknowledged. I could see that being very frustrating. Yeah. But either way, I think... I think you need to quantify the har the harm this person is causing. I mean, quantify is probably the wrong word. You're not going to like assign a number to it. But you want to you want to make clear the harm that they're causing. If you actually want to get them fired, you should be able to present a case saying, "Here's how the team is worse off with them on it." And also, here's how it's bad enough that it's worth the pain of firing someone, which might be horrible at your organization or it might just be like it causes the team lots of pain to fire someone. It's not just like sometimes they write bad code. That doesn't feel like enough to me. Yeah, agreed. And I think that's maybe the big takeaway is uh, first you need to figure out, is this person really, do they really need to be terminated for the good of the team? Sometimes it's easy to be convinced of that until you have to go present a case to someone else. And then suddenly the words yeah. start coming out and you're like, oh, this doesn't quite feel right. So I would probably write a case with specific examples that someone else could read without all the context that you have and come to the same conclusion. And if you can't produce that, and it, then I would say drop it and learn how to work with this person. Try to figure out their strengths and how they really benefit the team and figure out how to make those strengths work for you in your dynamic. And there will be things that you're better at than them and there will be things that they're better at than you and see what you can do with it. Maybe they can update your JIRA tickets for you. That would be oh. so cool. Oh, that'd be the dream. <laughs> you just like send a Slack message. Hey, I finished this thing. Okay, yeah. I'll get that updated for you. Yeah, I don't know. What about the ethics of this approach where you you are basically making this secret campaign to get someone fired? Mm -hmm. Is that okay? Should you talk to this person? Should, is, should you talk to your manager? Should you talk to your manager's manager? Is that is that an acceptable course of action, I guess? Um, this is the kind of thing where you open the box and you can't close it again. You know, once you go to your manager with a case like this, you know, they won't ever forget that. So you do have to tread cautiously, I think. And you have to be really, really confident that you're right. And so rather than, I think, just dumping this all on the floor uh, for your manager to look at, I would probably start with asking questions. Like, how is so-and-so? Are they, you know, a strong performer? Is You know, do they need coaching? What can I, you know, and, and just try to kind of figure out if management is already clued into this. Without, I think, just jumping right in and saying, here are 10 reasons why so-and-so should be fired. Yeah. So that's how I would go into it, very, very cautiously and lightly before I just jump right into my court case. 
Yeah, you wouldn't just kick down the door and drop your easel with the foldy paper thing on it and <laughs> flip through your chart that de- demonstrates why this person needs to be fired. Exactly. And then would, would I go to that person individually and talk to them? Whew. This is a hard conversation to have with someone. What you're really trying to say is you're pretty good at producing features, but you're really not good at these other things. Unless you have suggestions for them to actually improve, I think it would be unproductive to take that kind of a message to someone. Yeah. I think you can present information to your manager and there might be things they don't know. There might also be things that you don't know. But I feel like if someone came to me and said, this person needs to be fired and it wasn't a thing that was already on my mind, I would I would, I would definitely listen to them, but I would also wonder, like, what is it about this person that means that their opinion of their teammate is so different from mine? Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm aware of some struggles or weaknesses or problems, but if I don't already think, like, is it worth it to have them on the team or not? Yeah, I, I could see what you mean by treading carefully, that saying they need to be fired is a pretty, that's, that's a pretty heavy thing to say. And it's also a pretty painful thing to go through. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. I've worked with a handful of people that I felt needed to be fired. And in those cases, pretty much everyone kind of knew. There was something so egregious about their behavior or situation or whatever that, that everyone knew, like, this is real bad. And maybe no one wanted to pull the trigger or go through the pain. But but it wasn't, I haven't ever seen a situation where I felt like someone needed to be fired and no one knew, right? Pe- people knew. So think if you take Dave's advice and kind of explore what is going on already, that might be a pretty good signal of how big of a problem the organization sees it as. And you can add more data to that, but coming in too strong might might undermine your case if you really yeah. want them gone. Yeah, let your you present the facts. Let your manager come to the right conclusion for that person using everything that they know in addition to the facts that you are sharing. Yep. Um, it's not really your job to make the judgment call that they need to be terminated or not. And uh, thankfully, because, you know, that's above your pay grade, presumably. And it sucks. Yeah, <laughs> it's a sucky job. All right. Are we done answering the question? I think so. I think good luck to you and, and try to make this as beneficial of a circumstance as you can for this person and yourself and your manager. Um, I would be very, very cautious about just running in here and making a strong case for them to be terminated. Sure. All right, Dave, where can people go if they want advice to their tricky soft skills problems? Go to softskills.audio and click on ask a question where you can put in your name or not, leave it blank if you want, and enter a question. Also there, if you've had your question answered, you can fill in that same form to let us know how things went if you took our advice or if you did the right thing and rejected our advice. We would love to hear about either case. If you did the opposite of our advice and it helped you a lot, we're especially (laughs) interested in that. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week.